Hello and welcome to Crossing Borders with Nathan Lustig, where I interview entrepreneurs doing startups across borders and the investors who support them, with a focus on companies that have some relationship to Latin America. My guest today is David Lloyd, co-founder and CEO of The Intern Group, an education company that has helped more than 5,000 students from more than 125 countries around the world find top internships abroad. We'll talk about how David left his job at a City of London investment bank to start The Intern Group, how he came up with the idea started the ball rolling, and his journey to build the intern group into a global powerhouse with more than 30,000 applications for the intern group program and more than 2,000 participants in 2016. We'll also cover the strategies his team uses to work globally from offices in 12 different countries around the world and some of the advantages of running global business with operations in Latin America. David and I first met back in 2011 on the soccer field in Santiago, Chile, and have been great friends ever since. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hope you will too. I'm here with David Lloyd, the co-founder of The Intern Group. We're here in Santiago, Chile. Welcome, David. Thank you for inviting me. No, of course. So I've known David for I think about six years now. Um, we met playing soccer in Startup Chile. You remember that? I do. You played very badly. Oh, yeah, I know. Us Americans, we can't play. It's Still really learning. Tough. Still learning. Yeah, I know. It's, it's going to take a while. We'll catch up. Anyway, so why are we in Santiago? We are in Santiago by a weird twist of fate caused by the Startup Chile program. Mm -hmm. And so how did you get involved with Startup Chile? I got involved in Startup Chile via a Facebook message from my Argentine lawyer who said there was a government program in Chile giving $40,000 to promising entrepreneurs with no strings attached nor equity taken. Yeah, so mine was pretty similar. I saw an article in Forbes and said this can't be beat. You know, we'll get to go down to Santiago, Chile in the summer. It's going to skip Wisconsin winter with our, you know, two feet of snow and, you know, negative 10 Celsius, zero degrees Fahrenheit, negative five Fahrenheit temperatures and made the same jump. And so, you know, you're from, you're from London originally. Why, why did you have an Argentine lawyer? Due to my business, the intern group, um, we started the business uh, very much focusing on Latin America. We wanted to send student interns who wanted to do internships in Latin America to Latin America and as one and, and, and as natural consequence of that we had an Argentine lawyer. Makes sense and so we'll get back to, to the intern group and go into it a little deeper in a bit but what made you decide to be interested in Latin America? When did you first start uh, getting involved in Latin America? I went on a trip to Brazil, Argentina and Chile after graduating from university when I was 21 and very little in London is known about cities like Buenos Aires, Rio, Santiago and I thought upon arrival these places were incredible an incredible combination of culture of food of nightlife of excitement of exotic of the unknown 
and I didn't want to be a monoglot, typical Englishman, Australian, American, who lives in the place they're born, grows up in the place they're born, doesn't experience the world, doesn't learn another language. I wanted to try something different. I wanted to be outside of my comfort zone and Latin America blew me away and still enchants me to the current day. And so why why did you think that you were different, that you wanted to learn Spanish? So I mean, I had the same the same sort of feeling where growing up I knew at some point I wanted to learn some other language. Um, I didn't know if mine was going to be Spanish. I took an Italian class, I took a French class, but it ended up being Spanish was the one. What what kind of made you want to come to to learn a language? Yeah, great question. I mean, that's sort of two questions. Why learn a language one and then why Spanish two? Why learn a language one? I think that's a very personal thing for me. It was a mixture of personal and professional. So for professional, obviously, if you have an important language in your repertoire globally, that's going to be a big advantage when it comes to professional opportunities. And then personal, I uh, probably weird sort of uh, desire to be somewhat different, to have done something different. And um, I probably read articles about reading novels in different languages, expanded your mind. And so uh, legitimate reasons of professional development coupled with probably quite illegitimate personal reasons to be cool or knowledgeable. Yeah, mine I think was just that I thought it was cool. I always, you know, watched soccer on the Spanish channel because when back in when I was young, that's all the, the soccer we got on TV. We didn't get anything in English. And so, you know, we'd watch the Saturday afternoon Mexican league on, on the Spanish channel. And I thought it was always cool. So going back, you thought... And that... Spanish, just to just answer your question mm -hmm. on Spanish, I mean, it's very simple. It's, it was literally, what is the most common language coupled with what is an easy language to learn and I simply did a cost-benefit ratio and I thought hang on Spanish is used by so many people and it's one of the relatively easier languages to learn coupled with all of the reasons why I liked South America in the first place it was a no-brain it had to be Spanish yeah I think it makes sense and so going back to you said something that that said you you wanted to be different, and your your kind of path to starting a company that uh, has an office in Latin America and other places around the world started from a fairly traditional place, right? You went to a nice university and got a kind of traditional job. How did that How did that change from? So you came back from your trip to Latin America, and now you're in university. Uh, tell me a little bit about what what that was like. Yeah, I am not one of those people who will tell you that since they were age seven, they always wanted to have their own business, that they started showing entrepreneurial flair at age nine, selling sweets in their local store. I had a very sort of go to a good university, get a good job mentality. Um, I quit working on the trading floor for Merrill Lynch in London in sales and trading. I quit that to set up the company. Um, and that was a big thing for me because I was completely jumping into the unknown. 
Um, but I was certain that I didn't want to do that career any longer. I didn't like uh, the product or the environment, the working environment. Um, and I had an urge to go back to South America to experience it after I lived there for a year and learnt Spanish. Um, and I was determined uh, to make that happen any which way. And so it was just a combination of finding a way to have a meaningful professional career, but based in a place I wanted to be physically placed uh, based yeah, in. I think I think the the leaving leaving a business leaving a stable job to start something is one of those interesting things that most people think about doing a lot during their life, but not many people do. And I think there maybe are some some misconceptions of, of what that looks like. So while you were working in your job, how did you start to make a plan to start your own business? Were you doing thinking for you know a year on the job um, and making a plan and, and getting ready to go, or did you just said you know what I can't do this this job anymore and I'm just I'm ready to to do it and I'm gonna jump out of this plane with no parachute and I'm gonna build my parachute on the way down. I think the sensible thing is to plan. I did not, however, plan. I decided that I did not want to work in the long term in finance in London. And so rather than feel obliged to do the obligatory two years before leaving based on advice I received and others would always receive on what about your how your resume will look after this, I actually quit after a very embarrassingly short period of time, uh, less than a year, um, and I had no parachute, um, but I felt so insecure afterwards at my decision, and it was so questioned by friends and family who said, wow, you've left after less than two years, that shows some sort of inherent character flaw of weakness, that I felt so insecure that within about three days, I went and sat in Starbucks for about 10 hours with a good friend of mine and started thinking of ideas of a business I could do to send them all to hell. <laughs> yeah, you know, as I've seen similar, similar sort of chip on their shoulder from a lot of the portfolio companies that we have, especially from many of the, the founders that are expats, that are not from Latin America, that are doing something even, even tougher by starting a business outside of their own culture. So it's it's pretty interesting. So you, you were, you're sitting in Starbucks. Did you have a bunch of ideas and go down the list and figure out what the best one was? Or did you know that you wanted to do something with abroad? I had no idea whatsoever when I entered the Starbucks with a good friend of mine. And 10 hours later, we came out with an idea, which is the embryo of what I do now. And so what, what did you come out with? We came out with the idea of replicating the experience I had had in South America when I lived in Argentina for a year and did a couple of work placements there, learnt Spanish, got working experience in a great company in an emerging market and and thought, hang on a sec, this really helped me to get a top job afterwards. I really leveraged that experience at 
uh, Rolex in Argentina to get a great job in finance, even though it's sort of a completely different industry. It really caught the interviewer's eyes. Hang on a sec. Here's someone who went well out of their comfort zone, worked for a good company, got good working experience in a completely different environment to which they were accustomed, learned Spanish. That got the interviewer's eyes, and ultimately that was why from an online application to Merrill Lynch's system, ultimately I was selected. And we thought there was a lot of value from that experience, but there was a lot of problems to solve to make that experience happen. For me, the problems were finding accommodation. That was, now it's easier, but it was a disaster then. Finding an internship, then it was a disaster. Now it's still a disaster. You send you want to get an internship in South America, I invite you to send 100 emails to 100 different companies. If you get a reply, you'll, you'll be lucky. It might happen, but it's a lot of a pain. And then having that network when you arrive. I'm an outgoing person. I did make friends, but having that support network. There's a lot of problems and obstacles to solve to getting a really worthwhile working experience abroad. And the value is huge. And we thought, hang on a sec, maybe we can make something like this systematic. Maybe we can make this a normal part of the higher education system. So, okay, so you leave the Starbucks, you've been brainstorming for 10 ideas, or t for 10 hours there, you've got a lot of ideas, and you've narrowed down to, to one, and wanting to sort of replicate something you've already done. And, which is interesting too, because seeing a lot of different startups, a lot of the times the best companies are the ones that are solving problems that you already had or fixing an experience that you already did. And so you come out with the idea, what's your next step? Next step was, I showed it to a couple of family friends who'd done decently well in business for their input onto this, what is then a two-pager idea and their initial suggestions and input was pretty encouraging. Um, and then we thought, where could we send these student interns to? And because I wanted to go back to South America, I thought, well, everyone will want to go there. It's uh -huh. so amazing. Um, and so I started to share it with friends I had there to see if anyone wanted to do this project with me. I, I had made up my mind that I was determined to address this chip on the shoulder issue. And once I heard that initial feedback on, yeah, we think this has legs from people who were relatively to very successful in business, that gave me the confidence to just pursue it. And slightly, I had no other option. I slightly felt, I did have probably have other options, but I slightly felt like I had no other options. And this initial feedback from successful people made me think hang on a sec let's just go for this that's awesome yeah. and at a very young age i mean what did i have to lose people will say to you oh starting your own business is really expensive nowadays doesn't have to be absolute myth does not have to be um and obviously i was age 25 26 i had no family i had no wife i had no children my responsibility and my risk level was very low my only real risk was what will this look like on the resume if it failed yeah so that that's one of those things that I talk about a lot and think about a lot of mispricing that risk where a lot of people especially younger people think that what we do 
as being extremely risky. But I actually think it, think about it the other way where, you know, my worst case scenario of doing my own business and it fails is I go and get a job. And so the, the fallback is not, doesn't seem like there's really much risk there. It seems like you sort of see it the same way. Completely. Yeah, so you've, you've gotten some feedback. Where was your first, your first program? Where did you send students first? First program was to Colombia for the FIFA Soccer Under-20 World Cup where one of my two co-founders, Joanna, um, who is Colombian, who loved this project from the idea stage, um, we wanted to do a trial, so we managed to scrape 10 volunteering spots at the Under-20 World Cup, um, and we sent 10 students there who did a month program combining volunteering at the World Cup with Spanish classes, with meeting locals, with cultural events, um, and it was a complete, I mean, in, in hindsight, looking back, it was such a DIY job. We had the email address was personaladdress at gmail.com. <laughs> we were asking people to make a deposit for the program after having an interview to a PayPal account. Um, we had no website. We simply had a Facebook page. Um, and we managed to attract some really quite impressive people, quite impressive students. We ended up receiving over 200 applications. Wow. Um, and we were terrified because we uh, we... We thought we'd bid enough more than we can chew. Now, looking back, it seems incredibly small and unambitious. But at the time, it seemed like a massive mountain to climb. And so it, everything went well. The students had a great time. And do you have any, any issues of, you know, this is your first time bringing students from abroad? We had huge amounts of problems. Um, huge amounts of problems, I mean... The first question was, why on earth, I'm a 20-year-old US student, why on earth are you trying to send me to Colombia and make a deposit to a PayPal account, gmail.com? I mean, it was, a, it was a, we sort of looked like a weird people trafficking narco business. So yeah, it wasn't, we had huge amounts of problems, um, specifically in branding, reputation. Uh, the actual experience went incredibly well. Um, that's testament to the focus we've put on student experience but the actual experience went very smoothly and the feedback we literally went one by one to that group of 10 and got very extensive feedback areas to improve and the feedback with lots of areas to improve was very encouraging and that convinced us this could really have legs so you built you started to build the business after uh, the successful FIFA event. What happened next? How did you go about building the business? FIFA in summer 2011 in Colombia gave us confidence to apply for Startup Chile. We started there a few months later. We got the money. During the Startup Chile six-month program, we turned cash flow positive, And we had our next big test around a year after the initial FIFA trial when we 
in the summer of 2012, we started weirdly sporty. Um, got 25 spots at the London 2012 Olympic Games, mm -hmm. um, and we coupled that with um, programs in South America and in London across all industries, and that was our next big test. That's really that's really amazing. You were able to get under 20 World Cup and the Olympics just straight off the bat. Yeah, and it was through nothing other than hustle. Somebody might come in and say, oh, so you must have some sort of heavyweight contacts. Not really. This was literally email reach out to HR departments at uh, London Olympic Games and at FIFA. That's really, it's really pretty amazing. And so... How, what, where's the business gone since then? Where are you today? So from that initial trial in Colombia with 10 participants, now we have programs in nine, shortly to be 12 destinations all around the globe. We realized early on, we pivoted, we realized early on that only a limited number of the most adventurous, ambitious students wanted to go to Latin America. And in reality, this was a world market. So now we have soon to be 12 destinations all over the globe. We have more than 30,000 applications every year for our program. And we currently enroll around 1,500 students annually on our program. And we're very proud to count a lot of leading universities around the globe. And we're part of their degrees formally. So that initial idea to make this a normalized part of higher education, we're helping to make happen. I mean, 30,000 is a ton of applications. I mean, I, I don't know how many applications, you know, a small liberal arts college in the Midwest might get, but I bet you're pushing the numbers of, you know, some of the small universities in the States. Yeah, I, 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 I would be interested to see the stats. Every year, our application growth is sort of 50, 75% 100% year on year so it is exciting and I think a lot of people around the world see the value in work experience in the oldest apprenticeships is the oldest model of experience combine that with experience well outside of your comfort zone in a foreign country potentially in a foreign language and you really develop sort of skills which I really believe in it I mean I still do it the current day I'm working and living outside of my home country and the benefits both professionally and personally are real. So why, why do you think, can you expand on that a little? Why do you think it's so important to work or live abroad? I think any experience abroad is beneficial. I think, and why do I think that? I think any time you challenge yourself to get out of your comfort zone, to challenge your assumptions, to meet with people who you otherwise wouldn't meet with, you learn. And why do I think working abroad is the best way to do it rather than just living abroad, traveling abroad, studying abroad? Working abroad is a very intense form of doing it. You're surrounded by people from that different culture on a normal office hours basis. Many people who travel abroad spend their whole time with backpackers. Many people who study abroad spend their whole time with people from their home cohort university. If you're working abroad, genuinely working abroad, and you're surrounded by people from that country abroad, you're forced, you're forced to immerse yourself in that foreign country and culture.
Yeah, it's, it, I had a, a similar experience when I first came to Chile because the Startup Chile program is all in English. And even when I tried to speak Spanish, my Spanish was so terrible that, you know, the, the Startup Chile people just like, oh, come on, let's just switch to English. So I didn't really learn much uh, Spanish in the first, call it, four or five months in the program. And so when I decided to come back to Chile and actually work in Chilean companies and see how it was, that's what really forced me to, to learn Spanish and really understand what the work culture was like, what people on a day-to-day -day do in the office. And, you know, I think I, I remember when one of my good friends um, had some friends in town who had studied abroad in Argentina and they had been abroad for like, I think full two full semesters and they didn't barely speak a word of, of Spanish because they had stayed with all these study abroad kids and they hadn't really gotten into it. So I, mean, I think it, it really, it would be beneficial for, and is beneficial for more people to, uh, to go abroad. Um, and working abroad is the opium of living abroad. It's the purest form <laughs> of living abroad. It's the most intense form of living abroad and the rewards come with, it's, it's commensurate and it's a correlation to the bigger challenge. Yeah, and I think, I think that's, that's really true, especially when you, when you stop being a tourist and you're now a local, not necessarily a local, but somebody who's there an immigrant or an expat, whatever you want to call it, um, that's that's when you really start to see things from someone else's perspective. And I remember, I remember it being extremely humbling to not be able to express myself like I was used to being able to express myself. And I remember some of my good friends basically thought I was stupid for the first like two years in Chile because I could only speak in very simple, simple direct sentences. And uh, I mean, some of them probably still think I am stupid, but uh, you know, they they realized when one of the days when I was speaking English with uh, another English speaker, like, oh, that guy, he actually can talk about things, and I think that that's really can be a, a profound experience going back to your own culture to see it uh, from another person's perspective. One hundred percent. So you have you have twelve destinations. You have offices in how many places? Uh, all 12. All 12. And so you have, you have teams in all 12 as well. Yes. So how, mo that's, that's a pretty complicated structure for a smallish company. Uh, I think most people wouldn't think that a quickly growing company, small startup kind of company would, would have 12 different offices. It's more like, you know, a multinational big corporation. How are you able to pull that off? And how is that process? I'm not sure if anyone who's listening to this has seen, but at airports, HSBC, who for a long time used to brand themselves as the world's local bank, had um, as branding, in the future, even the smallest businesses will be multinational and a picture of a lemonade stand selling in all sorts of different currencies. The answer in a nutshell is technology. With technology, you can sell globally. You can start a business at an incredibly low cost. 
challenging those assumptions about you need a lot of money to start a business. You can start a business at low cost and you can sell globally immediately. Um, how going, about going so going to yeah. that, going to that point? Um, a lot of people think, oh, I need to raise huge amounts of money to to start a business. And a lot of the archetypes of successful founders are people that raised huge VC money and we celebrate people that raise at high valuations. You never raise money. We never raise money and there is an alternative. It might be for anyone who is considering starting their own business, raising money might well be the best option. It depends how much money you need. Um, but it's not necessarily the right option for us. Up till now, it certainly hasn't been the right option. Who knows what will happen in the future? Although right now we're very happy in our current model. There is an alternative, the bootstrap model. We bootstrapped. The total startup cost between me and my three co-founders was less than $4,000. That's a considerable amount of money, but it's certainly not insurmountable. This is something you can get credit card loan for mm -hmm. that, especially between three people. And you can find programs like Startup Chile and you can find other alternatives which don't mean you need to raise lots of money and you can potentially turn cash flow positive very quickly and cut costs and do things in a very cheap way to get going. Obviously, if you want to become very serious like we want to become now and like we are now, that's when you end up spending, you end up all your budget start increasing dramatically. But to start off with, to prove a concept, you can in many businesses start very lean and bootstrap. So how many, so you said before you had 30,000 applicants yeah. that you've bootstrapped to. How many students do the program now? 1,500 approximately annually. And what do you think it'll be this next year? Um, we try and keep a limit on the number of participants, but our long-term aim is we think in the long term we'll be, we're building an infrastructure where we can end up receiving um, maybe 10 times the amount of applications we're currently receiving and 10 times the amount of enrollments we're actually receiving. It's really, really cool to hear about a company that is all about the numbers and building without having to raise lots of money. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to hear. Um, so going back to your distributed teams, you have the 12 offices, tech has helped, um, the HSBC model of everyone being a, a multinational. What are some of the advantages you have as a distributed team with people all across the globe? The advantages, that's a good question. Normally people focus on the disadvantages. We'll get to those next. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there's lots of books written about how uh -huh. to deal with a remote team, like 37 Signals, who started mm -hmm. Basecamp, who've got a great book on remote working. The advantages of a remote team, I think if you're delivering a product locally or fulfilling a product or service locally, having that local expertise on the ground, having that local knowledge, having those local relationships, depending on what industry you're in, can be invaluable. In our industry, which is service-based, which is face-to-face, -face, which is making sure that the students who are accepted and do our program have a good experience in their internship, that they're happy in their cultural and social events, that they're happy in their accommodation that we all arrange as part of the program. That local knowledge, networks, know-how is invaluable. Um, if you're doing things all from, say, a head office in Minneapolis and you're trying to arrange things on the ground in Hong Kong, 
in our industry, the quality of service delivered would not be uh, would not be equal. I like how you used you know a midwestern city to Hong Kong instead of you know London to to Sydney. There. <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, you were trying um, <laughs> you were trying you were trying to draw parallels that helped your case. <laughs> and so, what about um, have you seen advantages in recruiting people by having multiple offices? And I know you have a pretty interesting model for workers and being able to work from multiple places. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Now I, I understand where you're sort of going with this. I think younger generation, I'm sort of speaking as if I'm geriatric here at 32, <laughs> but I think the youngest generations really appreciate flexibility. A lot of them really want to see the world, but be it flexibility, be it working from home, be it working from a different country, be it not having set hours, I think Flexibility as a word is really valued by the generation recently entered and entering the workplace and we offer a lot of that. We're completely focused on results, we're completely unfocused on presence. So if people want to work from different offices, if people want to work from home, if people want to work, we, we try and live the value that we have which is seeing more and more of the world enriches you as a person, enriches your skills, enriches your professional skills. And that is very attractive to attract top talent. We can't compete on salary. We are not an investment bank. We are not going to pay you a salary that is going to enrich you. But what we can do is offer you a wonderful opportunity to see the world, a wonderful opportunity to build something, and a wonderful opportunity to have that sort of flexibility. Well, I, w I wouldn't sell your 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 compensation packages short either, because you know in some of the destinations or some of the places where you have offices, a decent salary in the United States, while not investment banking, you can still live really really well. Well, completely, and that is all along the theme of arbitrage. It's considered very weird um, to have. It's still not considered normal to have a business which sells to the UK or sells to Australia or sells to a developed market like the US from outside of the US. Um, it's, it's not considered normal when you see someone from those countries doing it outside. And it's actually, it, 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 while there are complications, it, it has all sorts of advantages precisely for that reason you just mentioned. A... A salary that's very average for New York or London suddenly becomes amazing for someone who's who, who wants to have an experience from London or New York, but in a different country, in a South American country. Um, yeah. So I, I think one of the, the interesting things about both the intern group and then also some of the companies we have in our portfolio at Magma are that that do have offices in say the US or UK or, or Europe, when they're hiring for the US office, the fact that they do have a Latin American or a um, Asian office is seen as a huge advantage because maybe they can take two months a year and work out of the, that office. And we actually have a portfolio company that has an agreement that anybody who gets hired from their US office can take a pay cut and work for whatever the local wage would have been in their other office and they get oversubscribed every year. So it's really interesting to see how some of the best talent in the world ends up working for less wages than they would at call, say at an investment bank or a consulting firm, because I think, I think you are right that 
it isn't, especially for, and again, you know, we're going to sound like geriatric, but younger generation, um, to not be solely looking at compensation, looking at a monetary compensation, looking at other things like quality of life, life experience, all those types of things. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, 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 and that idea about, about the pay cut and still being oversubscribed, it doesn't surprise me. It's people prioritizing different things in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's right. And so, you know, we talked a lot about the advantages. Can any more come to mind? Or if not, we'll jump over to the disadvantages. No, I think that's about it for the advantages. So on the, on the disadvantages, you know, you said there's, there's lots of books written about it, and there are. What, are. what are some of the hard parts that you... Do you ever say, oh, man, I just wish I had everybody in London or everyone in New York? 100%. And the number one disadvantage is the obstacles that are not insurmountable, they are surmountable, but the obstacles, the extra obstacles that come in building a team. There's a really great phrase that's said in one of my favourite teamwork books, which sounds kind of a weird phrase to use, but called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And it's a quote from somebody whose name escapes me. But it says, if we could get everyone in our team rowing in the same direction 100% of the time, we could dominate any industry in any country at any time. Mm -hmm. I firmly agree with that. And the obstacles to creating a team that is fully rowing in the same direction 100% of the time at distance is inherently more challenging than if everyone is in the same room. Mm -hmm. So distance and, and getting everyone on the same page. Anything? What what other things that you see that are, are difficult? That one that I mentioned is by far the largest. Then it's a big gap to when you're operating in various jurisdictions, you have legal and compliance requirements to keep up with which are a pain in the proverbial yeah i i can definitely see that we have that with our uh, our magma portfolio companies where we have people operating from the u.s mexico costa rica colombia and all the way down through chile and argentina so it, it can definitely be be a pain what about something as simple as, I know you have people in Australia, Hong Kong, Chile, Colombia, London. What about something as simple as time zones? How do you, how do you make that work? Yeah, time zone is very challenging. Um, again, that would probably be a big gap to that one because all of these sort of problems are, are surmountable. It just involves um, people making sacrifices. We have our <coughs> second Global Town Hall, which is a meeting of all the global team. We're now around 80 staff next week. And it's at 12.30 London time, which has been carefully calibrated not to benefit the London office, but simply because that is the least antisocial hour for our 12 offices. Uh, and the most antisocial it is for is for the Columbia team, which is at 7.30 a.m., and the Melbourne team, which is at the... Uh, the I hurting 11.30 at night, Oof. Yeah. yeah, not ideal. So these are the sort of challenges you get, but it's give and take. The next one, it will be 
the London team might be the ones who are staying up late. So what kind of specific, do you have any specific tips to running a distributed team or a multinational team with, uh, as a not massive company? Yeah, 100%. Use technology to your advantage. Use technology to your advantage. Technology is making the world a lot smaller. That's a very big cliche. But use common sense. When you're communicating with your team, don't just use a WhatsApp phone call. Use a WhatsApp video call. Mm -hmm. Replicate wherever possible that dynamic which would otherwise be in the same office in a New York if all of your team was there. So the first thing is technology. The second thing is as soon as it allows financially, make sure you get face-to-face um, which remains the gold standard, however, however good technology gets. Make sure you get face-to-face -face meetings or off-sites or opportunities. Maybe financially it only allows to go once a year, but even that, a four-day meetup of your top team can make a huge difference and combine it with social events so people really start to trust each other. Um, and then the third thing is read world-class, a limited number, because less is always more, but a limited number of really world-leading books on teamwork. I really like the 37 Signals Basecamp book I've already mentioned, which really gives solutions to dealing with a remote team. And the number one book that I recommend on teamwork, which applies to remote or physically present teams, is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Teamwork is going to be a lot harder if you're remote and dispersed, but it is a surmountable challenge. Have you listened to the Matt Mullenweg podcasts or read, read any of his stuff? He's the founder of, uh, of WordPress, of Automatic, which is WordPress, which powers a huge portion of the internet. They're fully distributed across the world. If you haven't, you'd probably like it. I haven't, but I, 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 it sounds right up my street. Do you have any other any other tips on working with distributed teams? Any specific softwares that you think are really really good, or anything that if you were starting your distributed team from scratch again from zero that you would add? Softwares, yes. We love Slack for team communication and a feeling of global of one global team rather than a collection of different mm -hmm. offices around the world. We love Basecamp for keeping us all on the same page and for completing tasks globally. Um, and get a good conference call uh -huh. uh, software and we like go to meetings for that. And that works well. Uh, when, when you go back to London or to New York and talk to business people that have been successful either in tech businesses or more traditional businesses, and you tell them about the fact that you have a distributed team and you have offices in 12 countries and you have expats working for you and alongside locals in different areas, what's their reaction? <laughs> it's, a, it's a combination. It really depends on the person. Um, I'd say... 75% is raised eyebrows and highly skeptical, maybe 80% and 20-25%. And I think growing slowly but steadily 
is a tacit understanding of yes that's interesting yes i've seen other people make that work and i'm interested in seeing it whether this could be something that i should do as well and what would you say or what do you say to people that are skeptical of of a team like this and you haven't had to ask for investment uh, so i'm asking more because some of our our companies that we work with in latin america that end up moving to the united states and opening an office in somewhere in California or New York, who still have a distributed team, maybe they have their tech team or some sales in Latin America, but they're targeting the U.S. market, selling to U.S. clients and have an office in the States. We get a lot of pushback from investors that say, well, what are you doing? Why do you have that? Uh, what would you say to, to either investors or to just potential partners or whoever you might run across? I mean, there's so many advantages of having a remote team. One staff retention, you're able to offer staff who value flexibility, who value adventure, who value opportunity to work from different parts of the world. Two, uh, there is, for, for investors who don't like that softy softy approach and who are interested in hard numbers, I mean, do the maths, hire 100 people in New York or have a hundred people of that equal talent or a hundred people displaced or translated from New York to uh, Medellin, Colombia, do the maths on the staffing cost. You're looking at huge financial arbitrage opportunities, whether it's from a softy softy or hard numbers approach, the benefits are razor sharp. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think what we've seen, we've seen it in action, but it's, it's hard. I think it may be hard for people who haven't seen it up close or maybe are used to the traditional um, distributed team of maybe you have some tech guys in India or someone in Eastern Europe, and that's kind of your idea of it. What we're seeing, not just in Latin America, but across the world with really, really good teams with top-notch people that if they were together in New York or California or London or Hong Kong, you couldn't hire that many good people together without spending huge, huge, huge amounts of money and being worried about them being um, hired by Facebook or hired by an investment bank. Exactly. So I'll give you a little opportunity to plug the intern group and tell people where they can find you, where they can find the program. So if you're a student at a, at a, at a university, it is quite likely your university is either partnered with us or considering partnering with us, and it might be part of your degree. Um, if that's not the case, you can find us at theinterngroup.com and you can see the sort of opportunities that we have in every continent in the world. You glossed over it might be part of your degree. Does that mean they get college credit? They do. They do uh, get college credit. So in the US, um, if you do our program, you can either get credit from your home university or transfer credit from our school of record and universities outside of the US. A lot of universities, for example, we're partners with King's College in London, who's one of the UK's best universities, and they give uh, their creds. They're, they're, they're incorporating our program into their degree. Um, so as part of formal degree, our program will make up a part of it, which is part of that normalizing this idea of getting experiential education, work experience 
abroad making it a normal part of education that's our mission and we've got a long way to go and they'll find you at what theinterngroup.com awesome thanks for taking the time to do this david um, and we've talked a lot over the years about a lot of these things and it's great to uh, get it on get it on record here i think it's going to be useful both for people who are thinking about going abroad whether to work to intern or to start their own business and also for it'll be there'll be some practical stuff here that you can take away for your business if you are doing a, uh, if you are doing a distributed business thank you for inviting me Nate and yeah my last message would be nobody ever regrets getting professional experience abroad yeah. you have nothing to lose and you have everything to gain i think that's a great place to end it Thanks again. Thank you.